I will sing the song of the man of battle, the man of battle. I will sing the song of Lord Gilgamesh, the man of battle. I will sing the song of him with the well-proportioned limbs, the man of battle. I will sing the song of him in his prime, the man of battle. I will sing the song of him who batters the wicked, the man of battle. I will sing the song of the Lord with the very black beard, the man of battle. I will sing the song of the Lord who excelled in athletic strength, the man of battle. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest, James. And we're currently reading Gilgamesh and the Bull of Heaven. As usual, this is the ETCSL translation. This is part of the Unug cycle, written about three kings of the city of Unug or Uruk in the 21st century BCE. And of course, this cycle of Sumerian Gilgamesh poems are predecessors to the later story in Akkadian, the famous epic of Gilgamesh. So in that later epic, Ishtar, who is the Akkadian version of Inanna, the patron goddess of Unug, propositions Gilgamesh, and he refuses her, citing her many past lovers whose lives she ruined. So she gets angry at being rejected and calls down the bull of heaven to wreck Unug. So it's unclear what happens in the Sumerian version that we're reading here. But either way, Inanna is angry and won't let Gilgamesh leave. My wild bull, I shall not let you go. Lord Gilgamesh, my wild bull, I shall not let you go. I shall not let you dispense justice in the Aeana. I shall not let you go to pronounce verdicts in my holy Gepair. I shall not let you go to dispense justice in the Aeana, beloved Bayan. Gilgamesh, I shall not let you go. You dispense justice in my Aeana. I shall not let you go. You pronounced verdicts in my holy Gepair. Gilgamesh, you may be punished. May you be held to account. So Gilgamesh responds, I shall certainly not try to take over the portion of Inanna in your Gipar. Ninnegala will not suffer because of my valorous strength. But Inanna, lady, don't you block my way either. My wish is to catch mountain bulls, to fill the cow pens. I wish to catch mountain sheep, to fill the sheepfolds. I wish to fill my vaults with silver and carnelian. The queen spoke with a snort. Inanna spoke with a snort. So the text breaks off here. It's worth pointing out here that the title that he gives Inanna, Nin Egala, is Sumerian for Lady of the Palace. Nin is Lady, Egal is Great House or Palace. So when the text returns, Inanna wants to unleash the bull of heaven to wreck Unug, but on the god of heaven and the father of all the other gods is not sure. My child, what use would it be? It will stir up the waters. It will leave enormous cow pads. If the great bull is let loose, will lay waste Unug. If the great bull is let loose against Gilgamesh, it will destroy Unug. I will not give her that which bears my own name. Maybe it will muddy the waters, and will leave gigantic cow pats, and let my father give me the bull of heaven, so I can kill the Lord, so I can kill the Lord, so I can kill the Lord, Lord Gilgamesh. Great An replied to holy Inanna, My child, the bull of heaven would not have any pasture, as its pasture is on the horizon. Maiden Inanna, the bull of heaven can only graze where the sun rises, so I cannot give the bull of heaven to you. Holy Inanna replied to him, I shall shout and make my voice reach heaven and earth. He was frightened, he was frightened, he was frightened of Inanna. Great An replied to holy Inanna, I shall give her the bull of heaven. She made her voice reach heaven. She made her voice reach earth. She made her voice reach heaven. She made her voice reach earth. It covered them like a woolen garment. It was spread over them like a linen garment. Who could speak to her? Who could speak to her? So An gave Inanna the bowl of heaven. In masculine fashion, the maiden Inanna grasped it by the lapis lazuli tether. Holy Inanna brought the bowl of heaven out. At Unug, the bull devoured the pasture and drank the water of the river in great slurps. With each slurp, it used up one mile of the river. It devoured the pasture and stripped the land bare. It broke up the palm trees of Unug as it bent them to fit into its mouth. When it was standing, the bull submerged Unug. The aura of the bull of heaven submerged Kulaba. And the aura here recalls the auras that Huwawa has in the myth that we read last time. It seems to be some kind of magical power that heavenly creatures possess. I think that in the entire course of the myth, the Bull of Heaven has always been particularly fascinating to me, and I know that that's not a terribly unique assertion, but there's something so incredible about the fact that Enkidu comes from this pastoral man, and he's taken out of this pastoral state where he's communicating with animals in some versions, and 
you know, he's sleeping on the ground and he's brought to the city and that is taken from him. And yet in the end, it is this bull of heaven that um, is going to be his undoing. Yeah, no, I, that's actually really interesting. So it's it's sort of he, as far away as he gets from it, it's this bull that in the end takes him down. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. But I like how it ties into the theme in the in the later Akkadian Epic of Gilgamesh of the attempt of humans and their artifice to triumph over nature. You know, whether that's literally eating grass and traveling with the herds or whether that's mortality or whether that's a big wild creature that is you know, larger and more powerful than the you know, the works of man, you know, the, the city of Unug or whatever. I don't know if you are on social media very much. I'm on it way too much. And there was... Um... A viral tweet a while ago where someone said, why in all of ancient history is there not any records of PTSD? And of course, that's not true. That's very much not true. But I mean, if you look at Gilgamesh, I mean, to me, the latter half of this poem is very much a man struggling with PTSD. It's him, oh, yeah. it's him losing his, his best friend or his lover. It's him trying to come to terms with that. It's him going to the journeys he will go to, to try to understand that. It's him weeping. It's, to me, Gilgamesh is a poem that can teach us so much about the pain and the horrors of losing someone you love in a conflict. No, I think that this is the part of this poetic cycle that has always stuck with me the most, because it's something that needs to happen. And yet every time I read through it, you know, it's still devastating. Yeah, I don't know. Think about the PTSD thing, though. Representations of trauma and mental illness resulting from trauma in the ancient world. You know, it's kind of full of it. I don't know. I guess I'm just thinking of, like, Greek tragedy in the sense that, you know, obviously Greek chorus would never say, oh, such and such a character, you know, Ajax is traumatized from all this war. That's why he went mad and killed all these cattle. You know, because it's kind of externalized. You know, there's kind of the gods make him mad and make him see something that isn't there. Um, and then he acts in this kind of unacceptable way and then kills himself. Thinking about the Furies, you know, in the Eumenides. Again, it's kind of this external representation of grief and guilt and, you know, trauma from Orestes killing his mom. Yeah, it's, it's, it was one of those things where, you know, it was a little bit of an unfortunate tweet. It was kind of a easy dunk. But um, I also think that those sorts of public engagements are important because a part of ancient history and classical reception has to come from the uninitiated, right? So it, it can't just be sort of tenured professors in smoking jackets to truly understand reception, it needs to be everyone. And so tweets like that have a place and they are important. And uh, just one other thing to add is that there's another poem that I think is very much about PTSD that is very much about sort of the trauma of losing a comrade in battle. And, you know, I, I'm not crazy about even using the term PTSD because it's such a modern day medicalized term for something that we're talking about that's very different. But I was recently reading the Argonautica and uh, in book two, Heracles is lost from the party and no less than 15 times going forward, the Argonauts will encounter something and either Jason or someone else on the crew will say, you know, geez, I really wish Heracles was here. And, you know, they'll cry about how Heracles isn't there. And just even when someone tells them, when someone comes from the ocean and tells them, this is Heracles' future. This is what he is doing. He will be okay. He wasn't meant to go further on the journey with you. He fulfilled his purpose here. There's still this unbelievable sadness and depression where the rest of the crews very much seems to have, you know, what we might consider a what would Jesus do bracelet for the rest of the uh, quest where it's, you know, what would Heracles do? So, I mean, it's everywhere. And it's important that we have these discussions about reception. And it's important that you know, we hear from people who, you know, maybe haven't had the opportunity to spend years and years in the stacks of, you know, a Harvard or an Oxford. But to me, Gilgamesh, especially at this point, becomes um, an epic of heartbreak and loss. And to use the modern day medicalized term PTSD. I mean, it's interesting in the Argonautica because Heracles doesn't die. He just goes away. He just walks away. It's funny because like, obviously that's because in the, in the pre-existing legends of Heracles, he was already doing this other stuff elsewhere and he couldn't go on the whole journey. But it's interesting that, you know, as far back as the Odyssey, there's kind of this ambivalence about Heracles, the legendary hero versus Heracles, the God. Like when they visit him in the underworld in the Odyssey, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the spirit of Heracles, the person is down there, but also Heracles, the God is up in Olympus with the God wife. 
Yeah, I believe that's what happens. Yeah, so it's 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 sort of he becomes throughout the tradition sort of two, I guess, separate beings. It's sort of a king's two body situation. I don't because like the fact that Heracles was a kind of legendary hero figure who was then deified is kind of exactly what happened to Gilgamesh in that he was a real, or at least you know probably based on a real historical figure who very quickly became deified and you know as early as like twenty six hundred BC, so like maybe a hundred years after he reigned. You know, shows up in Godless, and you know later on the kings of Lagash around 2400 BC give offerings to Gilgamesh as a kind of like past king. The same offerings they give their own dead ancestor kings, they give to Gilgamesh. So just like Heracles was kind of a pan-Mediterranean founding hero figure who is also a god and also a hero and also a guy who slays monsters, and, well, and also a patriarch of kings because you know there were multiple different royal lines that traced themselves back to Heracles in Iron Age Greece. Likewise, you know Gilgamesh was a historical figure who had this legend of slaying all these monsters attached to him who was born two-thirds god and one-third man, ended up dying, obviously. But after he died, became a god of the underworld, kind of judging souls in the afterlife. Kind of like Radamanthus and Minos and Achilles' grandpa, Iacchus. So Ur was a major Sumerian city on the southern edge of the Alluvium. It was near where the Euphrates flowed into the Gulf. The modern Arabic name of the site is Tel al-Mukayar, which is Arabic for bitumen mound. Ur was famously excavated by Leonard Woolley. He named the streets of Ur after streets in downtown London. And Agatha Christie met Max Malawan at the excavation of Ur in 1930. The late Ubayid period in Ur was marked by a big flood. Afterwards, we have the first houses with stone foundations and a slow pottery wheel. During the Uruk period, we have several meters of pottery sherd fill. In other words, a pile of broken pieces of pots, at least 10 feet high. We have evidence of large-scale pottery production during the Uruk period. So kilns, wasters, in other words, you know, rejects from the process, and various pottery tools, as well as a cylinder seal depicting women weaving which attests to textile production of some kind. So I mentioned earlier during the Jemdat Nasser period that we see the sign Sham for buy, pay, and sell, along with imported obsidian. This is evidence for trade from the very beginning of the written record. During the Jemdat Nasser period, Ur may have been a dependency of Unug. They have similar sealing styles. Ur might have also been Unug's trade port on the Gulf Coast. So in other words, not a city-state of its own yet. And of course, they might have also been part of the same city league with neither city technically in charge. So this episode and the next, we'll be looking at the Archaic period in Ur. So again, between about 2900 to 2600 BCE, Ur started off as a medium-sized town, about 20 hectares, with an urban population of three to 4,000. So a large town, but not bigger than Eridu during the Ubayid period. It was much smaller than contemporary Unug, Kish, and Shurupak, among other cities. So in the entire Ur metro area, 37 hectares were settled, including a number of other villages, ranging between about one half to 1.5 hectares. The total population of the metro area would have been about 6,000, with about 9,000 hectares, or 35 square miles, of arable land. This would all be connected to the Euphrates via a network of canals. During this period, Ur probably became the administrative center of the city league, and possibly a political hegemon, depending on its relationship to Unug. At least when it comes to trade, Ur seems to have been the southern epicenter of the Sumerian world. So I mentioned last episode, there is no clear division between early dynastic 1 and 2 at Ur, which is why I call the whole period the Archaic period. So, starting around 2900 BC, Ur became a self-sustaining economic system. The local authority collected goods in sealed containers and brought them to the administrative center to be unsealed. We have those seals. We'll talk about that soon. There was a local scribe school here that followed the same scribal tradition as late Uruk texts. So, in other words, they are still copying these kind of outdated, even obsolete texts, which points to a small-c conservative or archaizing tradition. The lexical tradition formalized during the Jemdat Nasser will continue throughout the early dynastic period. But we also have inscriptions and cylinder seals that show a new use of cuneiform, which combines two administrative technologies used during the Uruk period, you know, archaic cuneiform writing and cylinder seals. Now we have writing on the seals. I mentioned in the Gemini Nasser period that the writing was forwards on the seal, but it would be backwards when the seal was pressed into clay. Now the writing is backwards on the seal, so it can go the right way when it's pressed into clay. So by the 2700s BCE or so, Ur had become a major production center. Their texts show closer administrative control over herding and field management, and a trend towards increasing efficiency, for example, shortening the distance that goods had to travel. Scribes had begun to note down arrears and payment, so all of the most depressing features of modern life were invented first. We see evidence of large-scale storage, salaries for temple officials, rations for dependents, you know, manual laborers. You know, some of the goods they were moving around may or may not have been moved to the Ayana in Unug. Again, if they were part of the same city league or even the same state, or if Ur was just a seaside port for Unug or anything like that, that would make sense. Here in these texts, we see the first distinction in cuneiform between copper and bronze. Obviously, they had invented bronze during the fourth millennium, but they are starting to distinguish between pure copper and copper alloyed with arsenic. So copper is written with the sign Urudu, and bronze is written with the signs Ud-Kabar, pronounced Zabar. And in these administrative texts, we see no Semitic personal names. 
So unlike at Kish and Abu Salabik, where we see lots of people with Semitic names, probably in Akkadian or some other East Semitic language, here the names all seem to be in the Sumerian language. This might be because this is the earliest period that we have legible names from, and it also might be because Ur is farther south than these other places with Semitic speakers in them. So first let's look at our sources. Texts we have from Archaic Ur are mostly administrative texts. We have some lexical texts and school exercises, so you know, used to teach scribes how to write. In many ways, Archaic Ur was an intermediate step between the Uruk period texts and the later text at Shurupak and Abu Salabik during the Fara period. These scribes played a vital role in transmitting the Uruk scribal tradition. So, you know, they inherited a lexical tradition from the Uruk and Jemnitnasser period. So we have 410 total texts from Archaic Ur. 40 of these are seal impressions with no other text, and 30 of them are school tablets. These texts are standardized, but not very strictly. In other words, they all have the same stuff, but sometimes they're in different orders. One major innovation in cuneiform is the introduction of phonetic writing during this period. So now you could write names and foreign words, in addition to familiar objects that you learned how to write in scribe school. So for the first time, we can have a good idea of how words were actually pronounced, which again is how we're 100% sure that they're writing in Sumerian. They also made updates to orthography, which is kind of a combination of spelling and handwriting. So they're probably updating obsolete words. The point was to preserve the meaning, not the exact shape of the sign. In some of the places that these administrative texts mention, in Sumer, they mention Ur, obviously, and Lagash, along with Kulaba in Unug, and the other Sumerian cities of Nippur, Adab, and Larsa. Elsewhere, it mentions Elam, which is the Sumerian name for southwestern Iran, and Delmun, which might be a spelling of Dilmun, or modern Bahrain. It also might mention Ki and Gi, or Kengir, the land of Sumer, literally the land of the noble lords. So we have 290 administrative records from Archaic Ur. 27% record rations, 23% record land transactions, and 11% record cereal transfers. So they're moving grain from one place to another. Or transfers of large amounts of grain from the temple to an official or NC, usually for the purpose of feeding workers on some kind of labor project. These texts also refer to personnel matters, sheep rearing, and records of commodity movement. In other words, the clear majority of these texts deal with grain in some way, either dispersing it, allocating fields by calculating projected yield, or moving amounts of grain between different institutions and storehouses. One room, called the Ancient Room, was probably an office in the Temple of Nana. This room housed 198 administrative texts, about two-thirds of the total administrative texts we have from Archaic Ur. This office was probably primarily involved in distributing rations and administering land, possibly also dealing with livestock and craft products. Some of the records in this room include 20 loaves of bread for builders, builders being Shidim, and 20 loaves of bread for coppersmiths, coppersmiths being Simug. Other foods distributed include She Ninda, or barley bread, Bapir, or sourdough, Kash She, or barley beer, and Kash Sang, or high quality beer. Ninda, which is Sumerian for bread, originally referred to a measure of volume, which might recall the possibility that the beveled rim bowl from the Uruk period was a bread mold. We also have land management texts. So a 2021 article by Benati and Lecomte looked through texts from the Temple of Nana. Most of them were about field management so that they could grow grain for temple storehouses. They write, quote, Temple households in the early 3rd millennium BC controlled land estates that could virtually sustain entire urban sites and exploited them through increasingly complex arrangements with the farming sector, end quote. So we have about 80 land management texts, about one-fifth of the total. These are mostly found in the ancient room. We've also found some in the trash. In other words, in piles of texts that were thrown out instead of kept in the office where they were used. The most common type of land management text is a field allotment. In other words, a plot of land given to a particular person or group of people. These are generally given as shuku fields or subsistence fields. In other words, given to a person so that they could support themselves with their own land. These lands are also sometimes rented to officials. And other types of land management texts include a recording procedure for certain fields. So this might be surveying and area and seed texts. These are basically math problems where you multiply the seed rate by the area of land in order to calculate the total amount of grain you could expect from that field. So we have seven lexical texts, including five copies of the Lutu A list. We've been talking about this a lot. It's the list of temple officials starting with Nameshda. And we have one copy of the archaic fish list, which is a Uruk Jemdetnasser list of names of fish. One way to tell school texts from administrative records, when they often use the same words and deal with the same things, is that lexical lists are about teaching vocabulary. So when there has to be a number of something in a lexical list, that number is usually one. If there are lots of different numbers, that means that this is probably a text actually recording real life situations. But the point of scribe school is to train scribes to take records. And generally the way you do that is by having your students practice generic record keeping information. We talked about the Uruk period tribute list, which is a kind of generic account of tribute, which would prepare scribes for recording actual things given in tribute. To quote Lecomte and Benanti's 2017 article, scribal education, quote, was carried out within an institutional framework encompassing the management of large-scale agricultural estates, food and labor mobilization, and feasting, possibly connected to major households at the site of Ur, 
such as the Temple Household of Nana, end quote. We also have some practice tablets, which are tablets from a scribal school where students would practice writing a particular sign over and over again. One of them is the sign T over and over again. T was used to represent the concept of life. We talked about that in the Jemdat Nasser Sumerian question episode, episode 27. T being a homophone for both life and arrow. And another practice tablet we have is a column of unfinished cases, each containing the number one. We have a god list, which is the earliest god list attested in Mesopotamia. We have no Uruk parallel for this, and it's not clear how it was used. And only three of these gods have parallels at Shurupak, which is the next god list we have in history, around 2600, 2500s BC. These three overlapping gods are Nin-Iri, Nin-Uri, and maybe Amagan. If you don't recognize those, no, do I. There's certainly no Inanna. And we have some evidence from later periods of texts that might have existed at Archaic Ur, but we have now lost. For example, there is a cultic personnel list found at later Shurupak and Abu Salabik. This includes the phrase Nunuz zi Nana, or Priestess of Nana. This title is only mentioned in Archaic Ur, and we don't see any evidence of it during the Uruk period, which might be evidence that these later texts preserve the title of Priestess of Nana, even when we don't have the lexical list the scribes would have used to learn this at Archaic Ur. So now let's take a look at the Seal Impression Strata, or SIS. These are eight layers of discards from a major administrative center, possibly the Royal Office, or possibly connected to the City League. So, you know, discards as in tablets, seal impressions, and sculptures, also everyday garbage. These seem to have been disposed of systematically over a long period of time. So to look at the geography of trash, SIS 8 is the lowest layer, in other words, the earliest. SIS 6 and 7 are similar to each other. In a 2016 paper by Benatti and Lecomte, SIS 5 through 4 is, quote, a thick stratification of rubbish, a deposit formed by tips of lime and decomposed mud bricks, end quote. And the end of SIS 4 overlaps with the famous royal tombs of Ur, which we'll look at in the future. So the probable process here is that stuff was delivered to Ur and put in storage. These storage spaces were sealed either by the deliverer or by some official in the bureaucracy. Sometimes these sealed storerooms were sealed again, probably by a higher official. At some point, they would open these storerooms and move the goods inside elsewhere. This whole process would create at least one seal and possibly several. All these sealings would be collected to be audited by the bureaucracy and then ultimately discarded in this giant pile of garbage. Some of the places mentioned in these seals include Eridu, Ur, Larsa, Unug, Adab, Nippur, and Kesh with an E, also maybe Uma. If you're noticing a lot of overlap with these cities in the City League, that's not a coincidence. So one of the oldest seals we have is from a reed matting package, and the text on the seal says it's from Uriab, or the Ash of Ur, the royal precinct of Ur. The earliest sealings we have were mostly on containers of food, probably for short-term consumption. So at the very beginning of the Archaic period, they may not have had their entire storage building set up yet. We see seals of officials with Uruk period titles. I already mentioned Namesh Da, and the sign Nam also shows up. We see seals of institutions and communities, probably exchanged as gifts to solidify the relationship between members of the City League. And in these earliest sealings, we see no counter seals yet. As time goes on, we see more and more door sealings. So they're storing things in larger architectural storage facilities instead of just baskets. We see the first counter seals, sometimes up to five counter seals on the same ceiling. And we see more evidence of centripetal movement. In other words, other places giving stuff to ore, which lends credence to the theory that this is a kind of administrative center. We also see more complicated seals, more of them involving pictures. We see the name Nam Eshda, which might have been the leader of the City League, along with the names of other cities like Unug, Nippur, and Larsa. These texts might refer to the king of Kish, who during this period would have been a very powerful king in the north. It might also refer to the northern city of Sippar, but the same sign also refers to the Euphrates River. Individual suppliers sent grain, malt, bread, beer, soup, fruit, and various animal products like sheep and fleece, as well as arts and crafts like textiles, perfume, and dilmun axes. In terms of iconography, the earliest SIS layers already have leaf patterns. They're often stamped with a circular pattern like a rosette, which might be associated with Inanna. She might be a symbol of the City League, or they might be offerings to the Temple of Inanna specifically. These seals often include animals like antelopes, goats, and scorpions. We have lots of scenes with cattle. Human forms are rare. No clear gods or heroes, but we do have one chariot scene, which is interesting because both at Ur and at Kish, we have chariot burials of important people. Contest scenes are rare, so we don't have a lot of Master of the Beast motifs. In one, a naked man attacks a lion with a spear from behind, which is unusual because usually men and beasts fight each other face to face. We also have two dressed men fighting each other, but the most common contest scenes were between animals. So there might have been a festival named Ur, so this was written with the cuneiform sign Ur-2, which is not to be confused with the sign Uri, which was used to write the name of the city Ur. In later texts, this sign Ur-2 is used to write the Sumerian word Sunu, which is alternately translated as thigh, lap, or genitalia, as well as the verbs to sleep and to fertilize. So clearly Ur-2 has something to do with sex. The sign Ur-2 shows up a lot in the SIS, often as an explanation for a particular shipment of grain, 
and it shows up in the same context as later allocations for festivals. It's also associated with sexual imagery on seals. So in a 2010 paper by Peter Sharbaugh, he says that the sign Ur-2 refers to, quote, a particular ceremony linked with fertility and procreative force, triggering off these powers of nature and crucial for the fecundation of the land and its denizens, end quote. In other words, it might be a forerunner of the divine marriage or hierogamy ceremony. This will be a ritual evoking the consummation of Inanna's marriage to Dumuzi, sealed by some kind of sex and or sexual symbolism to ensure a bountiful harvest. Much more on that later. Whatever it was, it seems to have taken place in a building with a spread eagle emblem. The ritual seems to have involved a statue. The sign, Tak, refers to the touching of the statue. And the sign Magur might refer to a boating ritual. So one type of tribute mentioned in these seals is signified by the sign Edinu. This accompanies city names in 13 of 62 league ceilings, and it only appears once by itself. So Edinu is probably a modifier and not its own city or whatever. The meaning of Edinu is obscure. In one text, it appears with the sign Shu, which refers to textiles. It may or may not be related to Edin, the open plains between rivers. Also, Nin Tour is the only person who appears in both the Seal Impression Strata and the Royal Cemetery. She is the wife of King Mesanipada of Ur, who is one of the better documented kings of Ur from about 2500 BCE. So now we're going to take a look at the Temple of Nana, the titles of its officials, and how its economy worked. As I mentioned, Nana was the Sumerian moon god. His Akkadian name is Sin. Nana was the patron god of Ur, and his temple was the administrative center of the municipal government. So the temple household was headed by Sangha officials. These were temple faculty who controlled large areas of land. Sometimes they also paid rent to the temple. And Sangha is written with a sign depicting an abacus, indicating that their job probably included a fair amount of math. One Sangha was named Amar. He shows up a lot, but only in the ancient room, which we mentioned earlier. He was given large amounts of grain, probably to redistribute. Some other higher rank official titles. Akinda Gal got 26 hectares. Kinda Gal is a homophone with the Sumerian word for chief barber, but generally barbers aren't this rich, so this probably refers to some other kind of official. And Sang Sug is a land recorder. King Gal, literally in English spelled King Gal, usually means leader of the assembly, sometimes a labor or military overseer. So probably an intermediary between the institution and groups of commoners. But at Archaic Ur, the King Gal is responsible for land transactions possibly distributing them in their own name and possibly just signing off on them as a high-ranking official. We have another job title called Engiz, which was some type of cook. They seem to have received a number of cakes and they were possibly responsible for delivering them. So there probably wasn't a unified Sumerian pantheon preceding individual city cults. In other words, the major gods, you know, Inanna, Enki, Enlil, and so on, were worshipped widely because their cities were politically powerful and not the other way around. So over time, there were probably a lot of other moon gods that got associated with Nana, Sin, of course, being the most famous one, the Akkadian moon god. Maybe a god named Ashimbabar, who shows up as an alternate name for Nana. So probably the way the pantheon was assembled is that, you know, individual families had their household gods. As individual households became much more powerful and households grew into much larger and more expensive political institutions, the patron god of that family became the de facto patron god of the community centered on that large household. Obviously, during the Uruk period, a handful of these public buildings, institutions, temples, etc. became the centers of sprawling cities. As these cities traded, fought, and conducted diplomacy, and so on, stories about these cities' gods began to incorporate both folklore, either about those gods or other gods, and historical allegories and symbolism and propaganda and so on for the temples. So it's worth remembering that very little of the Sumerian literature we have is folklore as we understand it today. Most of it was directly produced as temple propaganda. Some scribal texts do incorporate some aspects of folklore, especially the proverbs that we looked at during the pottery Neolithic episodes. But because scribes were a tiny educated urban elite, these sayings that they were familiar with were not representative of the entire society at the time. So we really don't have much Mesopotamian folklore at all, which is a shame. What we do have are stories about city gods written by temple staff and performed at public festivals set up by the temple. So the average person would be familiar with the temple's version of myths, but will probably never know the kinds of stories that average people told to each other and or their favorite gods and heroes if they were different from the temple propaganda that we have. So I guess uh, an important, it's not interesting, but it's important thing to introduce about the way institutions like temples work is the way they handled their land. So like a hundred years ago, there was this kind of like a cross between the false impression and just kind of like Orientalist fantasy that yeah, at the beginning of Mesopotamian history, the temple or the palace, you know, whatever institution was in charge owned hundred percent of all land and everyone was at that institution's mercy. No, that's not the case. What is the case is that you have a whole bunch of peasants spread out across everywhere that, you know, own land in kind of kinship groups. You know, they, their family owns the land. They live on the land forever. They pass it down to their descendants. People marry into the family, etc. More or less, the same land is owned by the same family kind of forever, at least for the first half of the 2000s BC. 
And then you have institutions which control large amounts of labor organized into labor teams, you know, on a ration system and so on. We talked about that in the Uruk episodes. So, you know, the temple is able to develop huge tracts of land. And then because it has labor teams, you know, it has teams of workers, it, it can deploy teams of farm workers on its farmland to grow more food per hectare than regular farm family people could. So you end up with huge tracts of land that are administered by the temple. It's not enough food to support the entire city, the temple land itself. A, people feed themselves on their own land. And B, people pay tribute to the temple from the food they grow on their own land to support the employees of the temple. Also, when the temple has all this land, they can like parcel it up and give individual estates to, um, you know, say a big estate to an official. Because of that official's position in the temple hierarchy, that person will get labor teams to work that land. That person will get to use all of the grain from that land for their own purposes and so on, you know, as their payment for their job in the temple. And then kind of a carpenter or a smith or some kind of like, you know, skilled artisan, but not a fancy, powerful official might get one or two or three times the amount of land required for a person to support themselves. And the Sumerian term for that is shuku, which is subsistence. So, you know, the temple parcels out individual chunks of land to its various officials and employees and so on to support them and to kind of get them on board with what the temple's doing so that they have a stake in its success. Nothing destroys sort of the Orientalism that exists in the popular imagination for archaeology, quite like finding a tax record, right? Right. Um, so it's, um, if it was the, the wave of, of German archaeologists and anthropologists or uh, the English or the Americans or, you know, Carter, whatever you want to go for, nothing sort of does in the idea of this mythical land unlike anything you know we've ever seen before and just these incredibly racially insensitive racist ideas of of just this otherworldliness quite like uncovering a tax record about how you know uh john owes three silver pieces <laughs> well, I, I i think it's funny because like uh you know before the 19th century and before you know, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs and cuneiform were translated. You know, the Western conception of history went back to about 1000 BC and began with the Hebrew Bible and the Iliad. And if those are your ideas of where history began, then you would be, okay, well, history was extremely violent. Uh, you know, everyone is illiterate. You know, every, you know, everyone is, you know, barbarians running around, killing each other, doing all kinds of terrible things. And then you translate some old texts and you realize that there was 2000 years of written history before then. And, you know, uh, all kinds of, you know, educated people and all kinds of skilled crafts and all kinds of whatever. You know, obviously, you know, there's this kind of like idea of liberal progressivism that we start off in the worst possible conditions and move forward. We have this pop cultural understanding of, you know, things are bad in the 1950s, but they're good now, or things are bad in Victorian times or medieval times or whatever, you know, whatever period of history is easy to point a progression from more barbaric to more civilized. But it's interesting that in many ways, like in terms of, you know, wealth inequality, in terms of, you know, the participation of non-elites, in terms of whatever, we've kind of been hovering around a, a mean for the past 5,000 years and going, you know, different directions at different times. So in one text from Archaic Ur, the total land held by the temple was almost 1,200 hectares or 4.5 square miles. This was 13% of the total arable land in the Ur area. And the temple might have controlled even more land than this. In other words, this text might not count it all in the same way. This is enough land to support between 1,200 and 2,200 people a year. So potentially 40 to 70% of the population of Ur proper, or 20 to 40% of the total population of the Ur metro area might have been supported by the Temple of Nana. This is evidence of an institution with the capacity to collect, store, and distribute that amount of grain, which developed over the course of the Ubayid and Uruk periods. It's now getting more refined and taking more detailed records, so we can see what's going on between officials and kings and NCs and so on within the institution. What is invisible to us from these texts is the kind of physical coercion, economic coercion, slavery, and so on, required to force people to do work on 4.5 square miles of farmland. So generally, when people are awarded land, the text only gives their name, so we aren't always able to tell what job title they had. Some exceptions here. Two priests named Pashesh and Ishib An got 6.5 hectares each. Ushum Gal, a Simug or a smith, got 8.6 hectares. And Lulu, a Nagar or a carpenter, got 10.6 hectares. So an official called a new banda supervised work units of a couple hundred. These units were subdivided into groups of between 20 and 40, which were then overseen by an ugula. The title engar refers to farm managers. These were lower level officials in the temple hierarchy. They oversaw farm labor. They sometimes manned several different fields. They collected fees and taxes and paid rent. And they occasionally received land of their own. Uh, two engars named Ama AC and Munus Adgal both got 6.5 hectares each. 
So the term keshe ra in later times will refer both to manual labor and military service. In this context, it probably refers to manual laborers who are eligible to be drafted, and they might have received land after their military service. And then at the bottom of the hierarchy, we have sharecroppers who were provided with oxen, seed, and fodder, and they worked on land owned by officials in exchange for part of the produce. Looking at different types of field, ning and na is literally lord's domain. This is a type of field directly supervised by the temple. In one text, the domain of Nana is 837 hectares, or 3.2 square miles. In another text, a lord is awarded four fields, each about 50 hectares. And of course, this would be worked by sharecroppers or rented out, so that other people could force sharecroppers to work on their land. I already mentioned the term shuku, which refers to a subsistence field. This was a plot of land granted in return for services provided to the temple. Shuku fields range from 2 to 84 hectares. One guy named Bill Igibur has his field recorded in two different tablets, and it's the same size both times. The sign apin, or plow, refers to lands that are leased out. The sign apin can be read a few different ways in different contexts. In the context of fields leased out for rent, the Sumerian word there is apin la. It's used to write the verb to cultivate, which is pronounced uru, and it's sometimes used for the angar official, which is sometimes translated farmer, but it's more like farm manager. These categories weren't mutually exclusive. One text designates the fields in general as lord's fields, but summarizes them as leased out. So in other words, even though any particular lord might own a huge estate, they're not going to plow it all themselves, so it makes sense that they would lease some of it out and then force sharecroppers to work on some of it. One person named Lulu, Lu being the word for man, so his name is Man-Man, he shows up in six different documents. He is associated with an overseer, or a nubanda, and this Lulu is definitely a different guy from the carpenter I mentioned earlier, who was also named Lulu. So there's one text with kind of an unclear context. It mentions several people, over 83 minas of copper, which is you know, a large amount, 60 minas of some type of copper tool, 23 copper pots, nine oxen, one donkey, and a clause set apart identifying land in the quote-unquote domain of Nana. It's unclear what's happening in this text, but one interpretation is that people are exchanging goods for land. Copper objects would have been very valuable at this point. So if so, and they're trading amounts of copper for land, this might be the first known evidence of a monetary transaction. In other words, exchanging precious metal for property. And in terms of agricultural output, the average annual yield for large estates was about 650 kilograms of barley per hectare. That's just because large estates are an economy of scale. A smaller state could produce about 560 kilograms of barley per hectare. A person needs about 250 kilograms a year. So the minimum amount of farmland required per person is about half a hectare per year. But because they let fields lie fallow every other year, so as not to wear out the soil, the actual minimum per person per year is about one hectare. In other words, because you're only using one half of your land at any given time. So the total projected production of the 9,000 hectares of land in the Ur metro area would have produced between 2.5 and 3 million kilograms of barley per year, or about 3,000 tons which is about twice enough to feed the population. So the population would have eaten about half of that, 1.5 tons or so of barley. But the rest isn't all surplus. You know, you need some to plant. You're inevitably going to lose some to decay or pests or whatever. But it appears that people in Ur were very far from starving in any given year. But I really do appreciate the fact that we have enough text to be able to like calculate barley output per hectare of land. Like, I think that's really cool. I think that's beyond cool because it's um, sort of this dying breed of historical research, um, which does have a vampiric element. It won't seem to stay dead, which is viewing history, you know, through the great man theory and through these, you know, incredible moments of conflict. And it's if you look at things like garbage, you know, garbology, the study of archaeological garbage or tax records or anything like that, you're given such a, I don't want to say clearer because um, I think that it's important to not say what we do or do not know for certain in these fields, um, but it is such a more well-rounded uh, idea of what was going on. So I would rather look at, you know, the most boring possible tax record or a, you know, aqueduct blueprint than... Um, read uh, yet another uh, inflammatory and uh, deifying account by a uh, American conservative classicist about uh, Caesar's conquest in Gaul or anything <sighs> along those lines. So I agree. Talking about garbage, like the seal impression strata in archaic Ur, like it's, it's the way that we were able to establish the chronology just by dating the different layers of the garbage, essentially. It's the discarded seal impressions and kind of like broken pottery and stuff. It's kind of like the detritus from administration at Ur after the seal impressions are A, broken. Like the, the, the sealed package arrives 
you break the seal impression, you take out the stuff and do whatever with it. You know, you keep the broken seal impression for a while just to verify records and audit them and so on. Um, but after a certain point, it's garbage to you. It serves its purpose and you need to get rid of the clay. So you throw it in a big pile, you know, like, you know, the, the administrative complex will have a dedicated pile of garbage that sits there for hundreds of years that every time there's a new batch of garbage uh, seal impressions, you go and throw them out and they collect there over a couple hundred years. So the archaic period at Ur is going to butt up against the period of the royal tombs at Ur, which we'll look at in a future episode. Obviously, the royal tombs are famous for the extravagant amount of treasure buried with the important people in those tombs, as well as the dozens of other people sacrificed all at once and placed in a kind of grotesque tableau mort, if you will, inside these tombs. Like I said, we'll get to that in a future episode. The archaic period at Ur is going to end with the reigns of Mes Kalamdug and Mes Anepada. So King Mes Anepada titles himself Consort of the Lofty One, in other words, of Inanna, which recalls Enmarkar and Inanna. He also titles himself King of Kish, which he may or may not have actually ruled, but it was common during the early dynastic for powerful kings to call themselves King of Kish in the sense of King of the Known World. And Mesanepada's wife, Nintur, as I said, is the only individual attested in both the royal tombs and in the administrative records of archaic Ur. So during the 2700s, Ur appears to have had a king. The word used is Lugal, which again in Sumerian is great man. He lived in an A Lugal, or the household of the king. This household as an institution was presumably responsible for diplomacy and other city league business. The king was apparently not part of the temple hierarchy of Nana. One text refers to the Ab precinct, house of the king, the high priestess of Nana. Ab, of course, being the sign used to write Esh, which we've talked about at great length. So administrative texts from the Temple of Nana don't tend to mention a king or a Lugal. So one possibility is that Ur had a king, but not in Ur. In other words, the Lugal of Ur may have been the king of Unug. This may be why the texts barely refer to him. In this scenario, Unug would be the administrative capital of a unified kingdom, and Ur would be the biggest port town in this kingdom. We have a seal with the Master of the Beasts motif, in other words, a guy fighting two animals. The inscription on the seal might be read Dumu Nun, which could mean either son of a noble or son of an Enki. If so, this may be the first example of royal deification, in other words, a king claiming some kind of divinity. So the city center appears to have been a palace precinct, or maybe the extended household of the king. So here we see residences, administrative offices, workshops, and so on. This precinct is written with the cuneiform sign Ab, pronounced Esh, and it apparently housed both the temples and administrative buildings if there is a distinction between those two things. So the Esh also managed the extended economic unit of the royal household. So land, farm workers, artisans, etc. Everyone in the employ of the king. This would explain the bread and beer disbursements in these administrative texts. There's a person with the title Nubanda E Lugal, or the overseer of the king's household. And we also see the title Sangha, which is, throughout the early dynastic period, the title of a high-level position in a bureaucracy. The Sangha here received and controlled grain, Sangha is often translated priest or scribe, but the best translation is probably official because it has a wide range of uses, you know, ranging from the leader of the entire bureaucracy to just an important person within it. So last episode, I mentioned the title NC. So its general meaning in Sumerian is a leader who leads on behalf of a more important leader. In later periods, NC sometimes means king, in other words, the most powerful human in the city ruling on behalf of the god of the city. At Archaic Unug, NC apparently refers to the ruler of a city in the name of the Lugal or the king. It's also used for rulers of settlements of lower rank, somewhere like a mayor. NC is written with the signs Pa Te Si, sometimes abbreviated to Pa Si or just Pa. So in other words, when we see the Pa Si of Uri, that translates to the NC of Ur. So the NC of Ur was in charge of the city government, in other words, the concerns of Ur and its citizens, as opposed to the city league and diplomacy between city-states or the internal business of the palace. So the administrative texts we have for Ur appear to be from the city government. So as a result, it's mostly concerned with the allocation of labor and barley within Ur, not trade or tribute passing between cities. This might be another reason why they barely mentioned the king. The word NC often appears along with the names of specific fields. So as in later periods, elites control large amounts of farmland. Generally, they are issued land by the temple or the palace and own all of the fruits that come from that land in exchange for certain responsibilities to the state. In one text, one NC got 11,000 kilograms of barley and 15,000 kilograms of wheat. This could feed about 100 people for one year. This is probably to distribute as wages to other laborers under that NC's control. There are no texts where the NC is the one authorizing the transaction. So in other words, the NC is always receiving a dispensation from a higher power in these texts. So back in the Jemdet Nasser episode, we talked about city seals. In other words, seal impressions with the names of multiple cities on them. These corresponded with the first entries in the lexical city list from the early dynastic period. These cities included Ur, Unug, Eridu, Nippur, Larsa, and so on. Also Kesh with an E. To quote Peter Charva in a 2013 article, during this period, quote, The foremost political body seems to have been the Confederation of Municipal Communities, referred to in specialized literature as the City League, end quote. 
So the City League appears to have been a coherent self-governing body with its own identity and its own administrative bureaucracy with its own unified power over its own treasury and storehouses. Charvas suggested it might have also had, quote, religious unity maintained by means of contributions to a fund established for the purpose of carrying out a specific ritual, likely to have functioned as a cementing agent of the City League's unity, end quote. As we'll see, provisioning for festivals and feasts is a major function of temples during later periods. Most City League seals are on doors. In other words, they were used to seal up rooms, not mobile containers like jars or baskets. This indicates that the seals were used by a large institution with lots of storage spaces. What this seems to suggest is that the bearers of the City League seal visited member communities, collected tax and or tribute in kind, and confirmed their receipt via sealed documents. This tribute seems to have included figs, apples, wine, and a fish product called adaku'a, which might be garum, the Roman fermented fish sauce. The name of the city league might have been written with the sign Eresh, meaning queen. Later on, we will see a city league called the Ki and Gi League, and the signs She Naga will be used to write the name of the realm centered on Shurupak. So during the Uruk period, we talked about multiple seals on the same document as evidence of a multi-level bureaucracy. We see a similar thing here. So countermarking is the act of stamping clay a second time with a stamp seal, or possibly with the end of a cylinder seal. Stamping the clay with a circular end of the cylinder seal would leave a round indentation similar to a stamp from a stamp seal. This second seal, like I said, might attest to a higher level of administration. This second seal is often superimposed over the earlier cylinder seal impression, and not all seals are countermarked. So in a 2016 paper, Peter Charva says this might indicate two different areas of circulation. An inner sector without countermarks, connected with the city government of Ur specifically, and the countermarked outer sector, which might be the realm of the City League. We have lots of different countermarks, sometimes on different impressions of the same seal, which might attest to a, quote, shifting network of political alliances, end quote. The most common countermarking on seals is a rosette symbol, especially on door ceilings. The rosette is commonly associated with a nana. In this context, it might represent the city of Ur or the city league. It would make sense if the city league was ruled by the king of Unug, city of Inanna, that this symbol associated with Inanna would show up on documents within that city league. So back in the Uruk period, we talked about the possibility of a priest king at the top of the Lutu-A list, written with the signs Nam Eshda. One document at Archaic Ur has the City League emblems and a reference to a Namesh Da. So these two things combined might indicate that the Namesh Da was the leader of the City League. Like I mentioned in the Jemdat Nasser period, the signs for Namesh Da can be read Nam Gish Shita, or Lord of the Mace. So maces were outdated weapons by the 2000s BCE, replaced by spears and other weapons made with metal. So when we see depictions of a king using a mace, this is probably a ceremonial or ritual action, not the king using a standard issue weapon like every other soldier would have. In Jemdat Nasser texts, the Namesh Da is usually seen receiving and distributing goods and rationing out beer to workers. Peter Sharva's 2012 translation of this document from Archaic Ur reads, Namesh Da, House of En, or House of Nippur, Field of Utu, White Field, Ararma, Kesh with the Uri, Adab. So Ararma is the Sumerian name of Larsa, and Uri is Ur. So we know there was a Namesh Da in Archaic Ur, but he does not seem to have been an absolute emperor. In other words, he seems to have exercised his power within the Jemdat Nasser era city league. So to look at possible member cities of this league, I mentioned Nippur, the de facto religious capital of Sumer. The signs here read A-N, or House of the Lord. It can also be read En-Kid, which refers both to Enlil and Nippur, Enlil being the god of Nippur. Peter Sharva thinks House of the Lord is more likely, but Nippur is hugely important to later Sumerian city leagues, so that's up in the air. And yes, it's the same two signs from N-A as in N-A-T from the Sumerian question Jemdat Nasser episode. So the City League almost certainly included Ur, of course, because all these documents were from Ur. So Ur might have been the administrative center of the entire league, but maybe not the political capital. In this seal, Ur is written with the signs Shesh Ab, Ab meaning Esh or temple, and the sign Shesh representing the moon god Nana in text from archaic Ur. So in other words, as we saw during the Jemdat Nasser period, they're probably using the name of the Temple of Nana to refer to the entire municipal government of Ur. I mentioned Larsa, which is the Sumerian home of the sun god Utu in the southeast it's best known for its dominance in the 19th and 18th centuries BCE, far in the future. And I mentioned Kesh with an E. This is the home of the mother goddess Ninhursanga. This city is known only from texts. We don't actually know which archaeological site it corresponds to. It might be Abu Salabik, probably somewhere in northeastern Sumer. So, returning to the story of Gilgamesh and the Bull of Heaven. So previously, Inanna was angry at Gilgamesh, possibly because he rejected her advances, but it's not clear in this version. Either way, she sent a massive bull from heaven to destroy his city of Unug. So as this bull is rampaging, Gilgamesh is in his palace trying to ignore the destruction. Then Lord Gilgamesh spoke to his musician. Gilgamesh spoke to his musician, Lugal Gabangal. My musician, tune your strings. Give me a drink. 
My musician, Lugal Gabungal, perform your song, tune your strings, give me beer to drink, fill my bronze jug again. Lugal Gabungal replied to his master, Gilgamesh. Drink. That is why nothing of yours is important. My master, you may eat and you may drink, but as for me, how does this matter concern me? I really like this bit. It doesn't show up in the Akkadian epic, but no, this is kind of images of him just like, you know, feasting while the city burns. I think having sort of this world-weary barkeep who warns warns of danger to come, um, you know, you see this a lot in Victorian literature. You see it a lot in, you know, mid-century American pulp, and there's a reason it keeps coming up. It works. <laughs> it's, it's cool. It's interesting. Right. It's fun. So the bull keeps destroying Unug. At Unug, the bull drank the water of the river in great slurps. With each slurp, it used up one mile of the river but its thirst was not satisfied. It devoured the pasture and stripped the land bare. So Gilgamesh taunts the bull. My mother and my sister will tie the cattle to their tethering stakes. will tie the sheep to their tethering stakes. will tie their herds to their tethering stakes. They will throw your corpse in the deserted streets and throw your intestines in the broad square. They will send your carcass to the knackers and I shall share out your meat in baskets to the widow's sons who are citizens of my city. I shall make flasks of your two horns for pouring fine oil to Inanna in Aana. Inanna watched from the top of the ramparts. The bull bellowed in the dust, and Gilgamesh walked at its head as Enkidu climbed up the rope of its tail. Their fellow citizens came along. It covered them with dust, like a young calf unused to the yoke. Enkidu stood behind the bull and went around. He seized its tail. He spoke to its master, Gilgamesh. Oh, magnificent one, extending your staff of office, born of noble lineage, splendor of the gods, furious bull standing ready for battle, who is respected as the great Lord Gilgamesh of Unuk. Your mother was truly skilled in bearing children, and your nurse was truly skilled in suckling her charges. Lord, born of noble lineage, do not fear. To defeat the bull, Gilgamesh to defeat the bull, donned his harness of fifty medans. He strapped on his sword, weighing seven talents and thirty minas. He armed himself with his battle axe. This is kind of a stock scene in epic literature in general, where you know the hero straps on their fancy armor, and because they're very large and powerful, it tells you how heavy the armor is. Luckily for us, a mina is about a pound, so you know he's wearing a harness of about 50 pounds, and his sword is 420 pounds, or I guess 450 pounds. Which, you know, it's kind of like in the book of Samuel when uh, David fights Goliath. Goliath's weapons are described as, you know, comically enormous. A huge part of any epic, they have to be doing things that you and I could do. They have to be doing things you and I cannot do. And when they are doing things you and I can do, largely they're doing it in ways we cannot do it. You know, you or you and I could put on armor. We could pick up a sword. We cannot pick up, you know, a sword as big as a house. So Gilgamesh says, My mother who bore me, my mother who bore me in the house of Enki, Peshtur, the little sister, will bring back the cattle to their tethering stakes, will bring back the sheep to their tethering stakes. Bowl of heaven, they shall consign your hide to the streets. They shall consign your intestines to the broad square. The widows, sons of my city, shall each take their share of your meat in baskets. They shall consign your carcass to the knackers. And I shall turn your two horns into flasks for pouring fine oil to Inanna in Aana. So the bull of heaven is obviously a creature sent from heaven. It's not an animal so much as it is divine, but it's, you know, sent by human-like gods and doing battle with humans and destroying human institutions. So I think it's funny that in Gilgamesh's rhetoric, he skips over the human aspect entirely and tries to demote it straight from heavenly animal to meat. I think it could be argued, and I know it has before, that that the bull of heaven is is much more, as you alluded to, um, a celestial being and a spiritual being than any sort of carbon-based being, right? So for Gilgamesh, defeating the bull is about transforming it into something more human by killing it, right? So it's yeah. if you think about astronomy and, you know, what is one of the most popular constellations, right? It's Taurus. It is the bull, and the bull is in heaven, just like the bull of heaven is this celestial being. So it was. it's very interesting that, that this bull comes down from heaven, this celestial being, and Gilgamesh's concern is defeat to make it more human through death, which is something that, you know, keeps happening and keeps happening throughout this mythic cycle. What actually finally defeats hubris, what actually finally consecrates something as the ultimate human flawed experience, it is going through the death process. Yeah. Last episode, we talked about the fact that, you know, Gilgamesh is beset by fear of his own death. So, you know, he's trying to temporarily conquer death by you know, permanently dealing it out to other people. 
So going back to the theme of doing things similar to what we do, except in a way that we could not. In all periods of history, going to war and killing someone else so that you can live for that moment, you know, in that moment they die and you live, would be a relatable experience to many people. And of course the mythic aspect is instead of another person or, you know, instead of an animal that you're slaughtering to feed yourself, it's, you know, a celestial creature. It, I, I, obviously it is the point of the, the literature, but I just really appreciate Gilgamesh having godliness in him to the extent that it makes him powerful enough to destroy other godly figures, but not enough to protect him from death. It's a metaphor for royal power. He can, you know, defeat a variety of creatures in a variety of ways, a variety of humans, you know, with rival armies. But it's it's about very much how he can't, he needs to learn that he cannot save himself, that he cannot save, you know, Enkidu. And during Enkidu's uh, death, you know, he displays this sort of intense maturity towards death and the dying process and dying in a very unnatural way, right? So when we think about dying, there's nothing more natural than dying, right? It's the only thing that's a certainty. It's this horror and trauma of dying in a very unnatural way for death, which is extremely natural. And Enkidu displays this profound maturity, even through fear and horror, that Gilgamesh will not be at for quite a long time. Um, until we get to him when he is an old man in the rubber. Oh, that's interesting. The idea that Enkidu, having already been a beast, would have access to reserves of courage that Gilgamesh would never need as a king his whole life. So, continuing. The bull bellowed in the dust. Gilgamesh goaded him, and Enkidu and their fellow citizens watched. The bull covered them with dust, like a young calf unused to the yoke. Enkidu stood by the bull's head and spoke to Gilgamesh. Oh, magnificent one, extending your staff of office, born of noble lineage, splendor of the gods, furious-hearted bull standing ready for battle, warrior, do not stay your hand. When Enkidu had spoken thus to Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh himself smote its skull with his axe, weighing seven talents. The bull reared up so high, so high that it overbalanced. It spattered like rain. It spread itself out like the harvested crop. The king took his knife in his hand. Just as if he were a master chef, he hit Inanna with a hunch. He made her flee away like a pigeon and demolished those ramparts. Standing by the bull's head, the king wept bitter tears. Just as I can destroy you, so shall I do the same to her. So it's possible that haunch here is a euphemism for the bull's penis. That suggestion comes from Sophus Hella, who translated the Epic of Gilgamesh into English recently. You know, it's kind of common in literature broadly to use thigh as a metaphor for genitalia. If Gilgamesh did reject her advances earlier, this would be kind of the final insult is, you know, throwing bull pizzle at her. Yeah, it would be taking this act of aggression against the, you know, not to get Freudian, against the, the manhood of the warrior that was sent. Right. As Gilgamesh spoke, he consigned the bull's hide to the streets. He consigned its intestines to the broad square, and the widow's sons of his city each took their share of its meat in baskets. He consigned its carcass to the knackers and turned its two horns into flasks for pouring fine oil to Inanna in Aana. For the death of the bull of heaven, holy Inanna, it is sweet to praise you. And yeah, I don't have anything else to add besides the fact that this last scene is essentially a bull sacrifice in the most literal sense of the term. I think that's an aspect of ancient sacrifice that the general public doesn't always know is that usually when an animal is sacrificed, most of the meat gets eaten by people. Yeah, wow. it's 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 a very convenient process. There were a lot of conveniences in the act of animal sacrifice. So, for instance, in later Greek history, animal sacrifice predominantly means the thigh bones, the sacred or holy thigh bones, which, of course, you can't eat thigh bones. So it's very convenient that the act of sacrifice was burning of the thigh bones. And then there just happened to be a lot of meat that you would eat. And of course, eating the meat was a huge part of honoring the gods too. The thigh bones would be burned. And I'm sure there was, you know, a very pleasant smell from that as anyone who's ever eaten bone marrow will tell you. But uh, the meat was consumed in a festive process to these deities. And that's the same thing here. You know, the bull is sacrificed. The various meat and innards and horns are brought around the city, they're collected, they're used, even down to the horns, which are used to make receptacles to hold oil. And, you know, later, I'm sure, they were used to make receptacles to hold uh, different kind of beverages, ceremonial beverages, important wines, things of that nature. I can give a book recommendation. How about that? So, yeah, yeah, what is it? 
to our listeners, uh, if you are interested about Gilgamesh and the cycle of Gilgamesh and how we have what we have in the tablets and the Bowl of Heaven and all that fun jazz, check out uh, Gilgamesh, The Life of a Poem by Michael Schmidt. It is published by Princeton University. And wait for them to have a sale and you could probably pick it up for 13, 14 bucks. I have not heard of it, so I'll check it out. Yeah, it's very, very good. It goes through every tablet that exists and sort of the history of how the tablets were discovered, what the tablets say, if there are any conflicting translations, everything like that. Very, very good. (laughs) 